Welcome to episode number nine of the Contrarian Marketing Podcast, where we give you ideas you might not be thinking about. Today, we're talking about themes and predictions for the year ahead. Kevin, it's January, it's February. This is promotion time. I love talking to employees at companies all over the country, all over the world, and just hearing about like their promotion processes. Do they think they're going to get promoted? What are those processes like? What are those conversations like? And what I hear over and over is there's no clarity. You know, especially from SEO people, there's complaints about they don't think they're going to get promoted. There's no path to promotion. What do you think? What's what's been your experience with promotions? Have you ever been promoted in SEO as a marketer? Like, what should companies be doing? Yeah, it's a good question. Not not to brag, um, but I got I got promoted every company I worked at. I, I think it's a true problem that there's often not a clearly defined process, and it's always a little bit subjective. So. I'm not employed anymore, so I can, you know, uh, I, I don't have to hold my punches. But um, I, I think I think it's a very common problem. And at the same time, uh, just to preface that, I also think that because the last 15 years have been so good economically, and most companies have a lot of companies have been growing, I think it, it created a little bit of a false expectation, especially among younger people that every year you should get a promotion. I, I don't think that will continue. And I think that's something that where you have to manage your expectations, especially as you become more senior, the cadence of your promotions starts to slow down. However, it is a real problem that most companies don't have a clearly defined process or it's a, it's a, it's a fuzzy process that still leaves a lot, to, you know, um, a lot to be desired. And I think what you really have to do is you have to be proactive about your promotions and raises. If now is promotion time, it's not going to be, I'm not going to say it's, it's going to be too late, but you now have to prepare yourself for the next promotion cycle. And the way you do that is you have to have a deep conversation with your manager, uh, ideally at least an hour long, where you both write down criteria for you to be promoted. And my tip is for you to create a Google Doc shared with your manager write down the exact stuff that has to happen for you to get a promotion next time. And then in every one-on-one, -on -one, you cycle back to that. And you're like, okay, how are we doing on these goals? You know, how are we performing? Is that still true? So that when promotion time comes, there are, there's going to be no surprise. Ideally, this is something that the company initiates, but reality is most of the time, you have to take care of that yourself. So that the right time to prep for the next promotion is now, you want to have clarity by creating a Google Doc. It takes a bit of time, so you don't want to pro expect a promotion every year. And I'm also going to say that, in, in my experience, the, the fastest way to get a promotion is to actually change the company. And uh, that's something you want to avoid as a company, but that is also the harshest truth. I made the biggest jumps in my career when I, when I changed companies, right? And uh, again, I'm not saying it's the best way to do it. I'm not saying everybody should do it, but that's the harsh reality. And so if you employ people and you fear attrition, then you have to have, you have to have a career path ready for people, right? And there are career paths open on the internet, right? Tom Critchlow, shout out at this point, created a, a great uh, matrix for different levels of SEOs across different skill sets. That in my mind is kind of the minimum that you have to provide for your employees. So I feel like you're talking about the ideal scenario. The reality is even at big companies, everyone or not everyone, there are a lot of selfish people. There are a lot of selfish managers who want to keep people in their box and not let them get promoted. And even if you're sharing ideal Google Docs, you're probably right. You do have to move on and go to a different company. But I think, especially in marketing, there isn't always a clear path to promotion unless you get significant management abilities, which means that if you are a PPC manager, 
the company might not need a senior PPC manager. If you're an SEO manager, the company might not need a senior SEO manager. It's just really about changing your title and companies get stingy, especially in, in times like these. Because if they promote you, if they give you senior SEO manager or director of SEO when you have no employees beneath you, that means they got to give you more money. And especially, again, when times are tight, when money's tight, they don't want to do that. So there isn't a clear path to promotion unless you have those management abilities. And, you know, I, again, I, I, I preface this by I love talking to different people, started coaching a couple of people on, on how they can help get promoted and how they can think about you know, growing their career. And it's a challenge, especially, again, especially if you are one of those roles where there is no real path to growth other than to go to another company and to get more responsibility within your own company. You may be stuck and you may have to go to another company. But I feel like we should do a whole episode on this. So let's pause this kind of discussion. Actually, why don't we have people like reach out to us, give us ideas, tell us what they're thinking. Like I, I've talked to a few people and they've been you know, open to sharing what it's been like, their excuses. I had one person share with me that their managers made up excuses. Oh, you didn't present well at that meeting, so you can't get promoted. So they just put it all for a whole year because they didn't present well at the single meeting. <laughs> do a shout out on LinkedIn. Let's find out what people are doing. Yes, let's do it. We're going to link to that LinkedIn post in the show notes. And we want you to share your experience, your tips, your frustrations. Uh, just comment on the LinkedIn post and we'll make sure to surface like some of the best takes and some of the best tips. That being said, Eli, 2023, as you said, just started. We're two weeks in. And I think it's, it's time for us to talk a little bit about the big themes this year and, and some of the bigger things that we expect to happen, maybe some of the bigger things that we don't expect to happen. So what's, what's top of mind for you? What do you, think is, what, do you, what do you think 2023 is all about? So I'm one of those people that I don't think that years dramatically change, except for one year. 2020 was a dramatic change over anything anybody expected. But in general, you can see the year ahead and you know how things are going to be and sort of, and nothing changes within 12 months. Like even if we get a new president or, you know, there's a war like there's been the last year, the things just kind of just move along without any huge shocks. The, but the big thing, which started last year and started the year before and really continues to grow, I think is AI. So we got to talk about AI. Look, I'm all in the camp of this is going to change a lot. Maybe not everything. I do also think that we are in a hype cycle and people exaggerate a little bit. But the stuff that I've seen so far, I think is pretty significant. So I think, you know, if I had to make some definite statements for this year, first of all, I... 100% expect Google to launch a chat GPT competitor. I'm very surprised that they haven't reacted to, to a lot of this stuff yet. Other search engines like Neva, You, um, and Perplexity AI, uh, they already started to, to embed a chat GPT-like feature in their search engine and it looks really good. It's, it's, I was very surprised. I wrote about that in, in the growth memo. And so I think there's some, there's some really good concepts that start to make people think a little bit. And I think the whole buzz around OpenAI, uh, around OpenAI and ChatGPT is uh, is not so great for Google. So I'm not saying Google is doomed. I'm not in the camp. Google is going to die from AI, but I expect them to react and to publish something that makes them compete directly with OpenAI. And then Bing, which is also set to embed um, uh, uh, ChatGPT in, in Bing search. So I think that's going to happen. I also think that we're going to see multimodal AI happening. So what we see right now is generative AI for text. I think we're going to see something for news where you have a, a feature or an app that just tells you what the most important news are of the day based on your preferences. Uh, and I also think that we're going to see some company build um, a generative AI video feature 
where they show you a video that stitches together some of the best moments from other videos about a specific topic, right? So for example, you want to say you want to inform yourself about Russia against Ukraine. You're just going to type that in and, and you're going to see a video that stitches together different sections from other videos that give you a perfect kind of summary. So I call it like a, a video summary. Eli, how do you disagree? <laughs> Why do you assume I'm going to disagree? <laughs> all right. All right. All right. I am. I, for one, I don't think any of this thing, I think this is really new. The only thing that's new is that ChatGPT allowed people, we had a whole episode on this, is it just went more mainstream. So first of all, Google has the Google Assistant, which is on a billion devices. Google, that Google Assistant, aside from the fact that Google Assistant can't write papers for you, but Google Assistant can tell jokes, can tell dirty jokes too. My kids ask it to tell dirty jokes. It can tell you jokes, can sing you songs, it can give you information, it can, it can give you predictions. It, it looks things up. It tells you things. It's like ChatGPT, except they can't write papers. So I think Google's already doing that. I also think from an AI standpoint, there were it's step functions. That we have this AI that can do things on video. We have AI that can um, identify things. Stitching things together is going to be an improvement on something that already exists. Like I was just talking to someone yesterday uh, who was in a, a meeting at CES with MGM security and he got to see their facial recognition software and how like they identify people walking into casinos. And it's not just card counters. He said they like within the 45 minute meeting, they had five people they had to go escort out off the premises or follow because the facial recognition found them. And they were like, you know, prostitutes and drug dealers and people with restraining orders against other people or fired employees. But the facial recognition is doing that. That's AI. So we're going to see better facial recognition. We're going to see better, you know, making videos of like taking all these events and like, like you said, stitching things together, get improvements on it. And then the one thing I think that isn't being talked enough about it when it comes to chat GPT is this is expensive. So doing a Google search for those of us that, that are do more SEO than others, Google search is essentially a database search. So yes, there's real time search. What the real time search does is you do a query. The database or the, the algorithm understands your query as, oh, wow, this person wants to know this thing. I'm going to change that query into something I recognize. And then I'm just going to do a database lookup and feed in results, feed out results from the database of a table of what people are looking for. When it comes to ChatGPT, that's real time. So it has to say, what is this real time thing doing that is different than all the other real time queries that people might have done? And I'm going to give it a real time answer. That is very expensive from a compute standpoint. So right now, OpenAI is free. There are free tools playing around with it. I think once the doors get shut and it starts costing a lot of money from a compute standpoint, you know, OpenAI got a million users in the first couple of days. I'm, who knows what that's at right now? I don't think it will be as simple like for people to do. There's a reason people pay subscriptions for Jasper and, and all these other AI tools. And AI is expensive. It's very expensive. So. I think AI is here. It's been here, not necessarily new, and I don't think it changes much. But let's talk about AI content. I think that you think AI content is terrible. I think AI content is awesome. So why don't you go tell us why AI content is terrible so I can disagree with you. So look, I've been playing around with this a little bit. I played around with ChatGPT and other generative AI content generators based on GPT-3. And it, it is terrible as in so far that the first output is not ready to be published, right? You still need a human editor. You still need someone to fix um, spelling errors, grammar errors, and to just make the thing pop a bit more, right? Like a, a lot of the output is a bit 
dry or just feels monotonous and so you need someone to add a little bit of color it still cuts down the, the production time and costs significantly for for content like we're talking about you know 10 to 1 ratio but uh, the the raw output still needs to be edited by humans and so i think that the the value of editors is going to increase but they're going to dig through a lot more ai content we've seen some big companies experimenting with and launching AI content. CNET, for example, Bankrate, Yahoo has started to experiment with AI content. And I'm not talking the type of AI content that AP News, Associated Press, that is, has been publishing since 2015. I actually dug through that. They launched about 1,700 pages with AI content, but they're only two or three sentences long. This is not the type of content I'm talking about. I'm talking about long-form content. You know, for that to, to come from an AI, it's, it's just not yet ready to be published raw. It still needs editing and, uh, and, and some, some grooming and some maintenance. I agree with you on it. It's a research tool, but in general, I think AI content, we've talked about this before, by creating too much content, you lower the bar for how much content costs. So whereas maybe you used to go to you know, other countries that are a lot cheaper to pay writers and the quality might not be as good, you pay like $5 a piece of content, $50 a piece of content. Now it's basically free. So now there's just too much content out there. So I think users don't trust it as much. But I think there is a huge use case for AI content, writing up the news, writing sports scores, doing financial reporting. You know, you write an article about the latest earnings report that extracts the numbers from the earnings report and puts it into a blog post. I think that's great. It's not great when it's written terribly, but I think it's it's a great use of time. It's a great use of resources rather than to have some analyst, you know, again, in, in some country you're paying 50 bucks to put together. This is useful. So I think AI content is just a tool. I agree with you. It just needs to be groomed and improved. But I don't think like there's doom and gloom for real writers out there. I don't think there's doom and gloom for copy editors. This is a research tool. It allows people to gather information and produce information at a far cheaper and easier rate. But again, I step change. I don't think it changes that much. But how do you think like this kind of thing affects the freelancer market? Like, do you think it impacts Upwork and Fiverr and the people already writing content for very cheap? Yeah, I think this is the biggest threat to Upwork and Fiverr right now, to be honest, um, at least for a certain category on these platforms. And I just think that a huge swath of writers that write very mediocre content will just go away, right? So if you think about all the content or all they say, all the writers on a platform like Upwork, and uh, you think about the rating and there's like maybe a five-star rating, I think all the like one, two, three, four-star writers, they will all not have a job anymore. I think the five-star writers, they might sustain. Uh, and I think editors, as I mentioned before, will gain in value and will be in high demand. But I think the writers that are writing basically on a level or maybe below the level of what ChatGPT can produce today, I think they really need to retrain and look for other work because they're not going to have a future. Do you agree, Eli, or or you disagree? No, I think that's good. I, I think, again, like all the people that complain about chat or AI content as being low quality and polluting the internet, I think those low quality writers from Upwork and Fiverr are already polluting the internet. And I love the fact that they're essentially being replaced. Like I feel bad that they, they won't be able to earn an income. But if you're earning an income by doing something that isn't necessarily of great value, then there's other things to be to do there. So I totally agree. I think that AI content will lower that bar. It'll be cheaper or freer. And then people will ignore it because all this useless content, which they're probably ignoring anyways, if it's written by low quality writers. So it doesn't change much. 
just you know moves things around on the, the big chessboard of life. Well, let's go to another theme. Let's talk about social. So social is always a theme. Again, no big, no big changes there. But one thing that we've discussed in a whole episode is what happens to TikTok this year. You think it's going to get banned by the government. I think TikTok will just get banned by Apple and Google, which is effectively banned. Well, not banned, but they'll be removed from the marketplace. So it'll effectively disappear. But that will change everything. Because if you can't get TikTok, whether it's illegal, whether the app stores don't give it to you anymore, their usage has to decline. Who do you think takes over the usage? There's people who are spending hours a day on TikTok you know, Gen Z or whatever comes after Gen Z, uh, the, even the younger kids, they're spending way too much time on TikTok. What do they call it? I think it was a senator or a congressman called a fentanyl, digital fentanyl. So where do you think all these users go? What happens? I think it's a digital fentanyl, I think is a great description for TikTok. Speaking of polluting the internet, there's a report <laughs> that came out a while ago, but they basically showed that the overlap between people using TikTok, Instagram, Netflix, YouTube is incredibly high. And so I don't think it's necessarily subtractive to a certain degree. Yes, to a certain degree, TikTok competes for time just like Netflix. But I think there's a big overlap, right? People do both. In my mind, um, the company, the, the platform that's most likely to take over TikTok is actually YouTube. YouTube has the uh, comparative user, user base. They have shorts, which I think is actually a pretty good product. And they have a lot of content and they, they share revenue with creators. So I think the most likely one is YouTube. But I also think that several platforms can gain at the same time from TikTok going away simply because people spent their time in other ways that it's not just a single winner, but actually multiple ones. Where are you with that? I don't think about it. I think it's going to be Instagram. YouTube, in, it's, it's a different experience where YouTube needs to remind you or not even remind you, teach you that YouTube's for this short form video. They don't have, as far as I know, do they have a specific app for YouTube shorts or is it just YouTube and you choose shorts? It's in a YouTube app. Yeah. So they, they need to teach you that it exists. I think it goes to Instagram because it's already there. Like I've already seen people who are said like, oh, I'm done. I'm not addicted to TikTok anymore. I've, I've kicked the habit and now they're just flicking through Instagram all day. So they're still addicted. It's the concept. So I think it becomes Instagram because it's already there. The video is already there. The concept's already there. And Facebook's amazing at like stealing ideas. They're just going to take all the best stuff from TikTok and do it. And honestly, I think it saves Facebook because Facebook's usage declines or is declining with the, the core face uh, meta book. Instagram will help grow those daily actives again and go to the daily and grow the usage. But one thing I would say is, you know, not enough people talk about when it comes to Facebook is Facebook is the best place to buy and sell stuff. And that is, there is so much untapped potential there. I just sold something on Facebook this week. Like I remember I used to sell stuff on Craigslist. Like I sold a car on Craigslist for like $9,000 in cash. And you don't know who's going to show up at your door with $9,000 in cash. Like I, you know, this week I sold some really expensive hardware I needed, like I bought and I didn't need anymore. And I just didn't want to throw it out. I was able to look at the person's profile and know who was coming to my house before they came to my house. And like they had pictures with, with their grandkids and they didn't have any pictures like with, you know, guns in them. I was like, I think this is okay. If they, that's amazing. Facebook doesn't monetize that. They monetize it if you pay through Facebook, I think, or ship through Facebook. But otherwise, this is a peer-to-peer -peer transaction. So much potential there. So yes, it's not really a social network, but it's the best place to do this kind of thing. Like Craigslist doesn't really exist for this anymore. Nextdoor sort of does it, but Nextdoor doesn't have the user base of Facebook. So I think Facebook gets revived a little bit this year, especially if TikTok goes away. But if Facebook can also really tap into the potential of the other things they do, other than show up and see people's birthdays, which is the main thing that a lot of people are doing right now, there is potential. And then let's let's talk about Twitter. I mean, you're a big fan of Twitter. Where do you think Twitter goes this year? 
Yeah, it's a perfect transition because uh, apparently Instagram is working on a new feature that competes with Twitter directly. I think it's called Notes. I haven't tried it out yet. I haven't heard a lot, uh, a lot about it, but I think there's a massive opportunity right now for another social network to come and finish Twitter off. You know, like uh, it's, it's the best way I can put it. Uh, I think Twitter is in a really bad space. W one thing that speaks for them is that they have to sustain their their user base, even though, you know, the, like Elon Musk went um, a bit rogue last couple of months of 2022, but uh, there's also no great alternative. And so I think there has not been ever a better time for a competitor to build something like a clone, right? And maybe Instagram or Meta is, is actually perfectly suited for that and provide a, a, a better platform. Musk has promised all sorts of improvements. I haven't seen any reduction in bots, but I've seen a lot of improvements about speed, which nobody cares about. I don't think anybody ever complained about Twitter being too slow. So I don't think the, the product is advancing as he, he promised it would. I think things are moving really slow. I think Musk has publicly announced that he was going to step back as a CEO. That doesn't have a replacement yet. Tesla at the same time is is uh, decreasing in, in, in stock value and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's a, fl a flaming pile of, you know what? And uh, I think it's it's not a good spot. And the time is really good and ripe for a competitor to come along. I don't think it's Mastodon. I don't think it's Post. I think there's a good chance for one of the big ones to, to step into that. I'm curious to see what Alphabet does. And if they are interested in seizing the opportunity, the chances are probably low because they burned their fingers on social so often. So the most likely one is probably going to be Meta. And I think there's an opportunity here for them, right? I also think that Musk gave Zuck a lot of air cover, kind of distracted the press. So that that's where I see... Twitter going. Uh, it's going to, I think there's a real opportunity here for another platform to monetize that. And speaking of monetization, uh, Eli, another big theme of 2023 we agreed upon is attribution. What are your thoughts about when it comes to attribution in 2023? So the big one, I think, is GA is going to extend their deadline again on GA. Or is it called GA3 or Universal Analytics? So they, they've been trying to get everyone, or GA is Google Analytics, they're trying to get everyone to switch over to this new Google Analytics. And I just want to finish one point on your Twitter. The reason Google can't get everyone to switch over to GA4 is because it's new and everyone hates new stuff. And I think that's a huge theme that every time everyone's like, oh, you know, ChatGPT is going to change everything. Just look at GA. Look how hard it is. Google is working to get people to do the new thing. And they're like, no, 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 we're cool with the old thing. I think that works for Twitter too. Twitter might be not the greatest place to hang out, but everyone's like, I kind of like, you know, it's good enough. GA, I think Google Analytics they extend that deadline again. We can keep using old Google Analytics. I think there's going to be a lot of tools that are going to start filling the gap because if Google's struggling to get users over from GA Universal Analytics to GA4, there's room for other tools to come out there. The, the analytics market has been really, really small. Now, are there any analytics tools that you see out there like, you know, that users could be getting data from? There are tools, right? There are alternatives. Um... Is it as good as Google Analytics? The comprehensive ones, like really big ones, like Google Analytics. That's Adobe, uh, what is it called? Um, I forgot what the name is. Adobe Analytics. Adobe Analytics, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I, don't, I don't see competition for Google Analytics, but what I do see is that the product cannibalizes itself by this terrible, terrible launch of GA4. And I also, I actually agree with you. I, don't, I think they'll push the deadline back again. And I think that they will transport or transfer a lot of features from GA to GA4. Uh, or Universal Analytics to GA4. I don't understand why that was necessary. Nobody needed GA4. Nobody, right? So it's like out of the blue, somebody wanted to make a change where no change was necessary and actually drove a lot of users away. So uh, I think part of the power of GA is that it's free. 
it's easy to embed. It's it's embeddable with Search Console. Uh, you can you can actually do a lot with Google Analytics, and they already won the market. Why make a change that is so drastically different and, and misses so many new features? So I'm actually, I'm actually very bearish uh, about GA4, uh, and I think that there's also an opportunity for somebody else to come along and present something that is also free, at least has a free tier, as extensive as Google Analytics, maybe privacy first, very customizable, and that poses a real threat to Google Analytics. Yeah, I, I mean, I, the other big thing, and, and we get, we're going to dig into privacy, we got to talk about privacy, but the other big thing is really like get it, look, looking at the whole data picture and Ahrefs, our sponsor, Ahrefs, like they help you get that whole data picture. It may not be accurate, but then again, like GA may not be accurate because of privacy issues. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. We're talking about analytics tools, talking about GA, talking about, you know, Adobe Analytics, which really look at that internal data. But if internal data is not accurate and is super expensive from a you know resource standpoint, you could probably get a good sense of how things are working when you use a tool like Ahrefs or, or similar web or SEMrush. But you know, just to understand what the channels are that are working for you or working for your competitors. And I think this year, it, we're not calling it a major theme because I, I don't think it's a major thing when really when it comes to marketing in general is the economy. So understanding which channels are working for you and where you should put more money and where you should pull back. You need a tool like this that tells you, well, SEO is really performing for you or your paid marketing isn't performing as well for you because of privacy, which we got to talk about, but your paid marketing isn't performing as well for you. So maybe pull back a little bit there or your influencer marketing or, you know, Super Bowl is going to happen soon. Your Super Bowl worked out really well based on all these metrics. We're seeing this tool that Adobe Analytics, Google Analytics cannot even capture. That helps you really prioritize your spend and prioritize your marketing. But let's do our last theme, privacy, which I think underpins this whole concept of attribution. What do you think is going to happen this year on privacy? Yeah, we've already seen ATT, Apple Tracking Transparency, throwing a major wrench into attribution in general, destroying many billions of dollars for Facebook and for other platforms, and then Apple themselves kind of stepping into that gap. So there's a big tectonic shift in my mind where Apple restricts data that makes it much, much harder for other platforms to provide value to advertisers, right? And I think, you know, we spoke about AI before. I think Facebook is actually very interested in, in AI to improve their targeting, bring it from a deterministic targeting model to a probabilistic targeting model that is actually working really well. This has shown us what the power of, of hardware manufacturers and hardware providers is, right? They can restrict data on, on, a, on a whole different level. So I think when we talk about privacy, we have to talk about ATT. We spoke about TikTok before. I think TikTok was impacted by ATT. Um, YouTube was impacted. Basically, any platform that had performance marketing uh, or provided performance uh, marketing solutions. And I think there's a, is a big change. You know, I'm very, very, um, interested and curious about how Alphabet will actually respond to that. Will they follow something similar or, or actually provide something different in order to grab more market share from advertisers against Apple? So I think those two companies are going to clash a little bit when it comes to privacy. They both agreed to bury the cookie or third party cookie, better said. What, what first party data and first party tracking is, is a whole nother conversation. And I think it's another frontier where Apple and Alphabet are going to go to war. And then it's going to be interesting to see how Meta will try to get out of the, the fire lines. Eli, what, what else should we think about when it comes to privacy? Meta is the child being fought over by both parents. Uh, with between <laughs> Google and, and Apple. I, I think the fundamental difference between Google and Apple is how they make money. So Google makes money from advertising. First and foremost, I think I just saw this infographic. It's like 51% of their revenue 
or gotta be more than that comes from search ads. So the last thing Google wants to do is blow up this whole attribution thing because then they, they end up in that Facebook camp of like, well, we don't know if it works for us so we're not gonna spend as much money anymore or we don't know if it works for us so we're gonna keep our, our spend fixed but we're not really gonna increase it because we just don't know. Google can't do that because at the same time, they claim to be a privacy-oriented company. They're making all this money off advertising. Apple makes all their money off the iPhone and devices. So they can go and pretend to care more about privacy and users. And I think they really pretend because they also keep that users. You could advertise with Apple and they it's their own ecosystem. They don't share any of that data. So I, I think that's the fundamental difference between Google and Apple. The really important thing to call out is that it's not really up to them. It's up to governments. So GDPR was a fundamental shift in tracking and data. You know, there's so many things that had to change because of GDPR. I remember when I was at SurveyMonkey, we spent a year implementing Google Analytics. Google Analytics Premium spent like, you know, $180,000 on it. And then we got it implemented a week before GDPR. So we get this thing going, we get all this data, and then GDPR comes out and you can't track anymore. So it blows up the whole thing. We can't see the European continent. We don't have no idea what our data is because people have to opt in. By the time they opt in, it becomes a direct visit. So GDPR and, and laws like GDPR have a huge impact on what companies like Apple, Google, and then everybody tracking any sort of data can do. And going back to the Ahrefs point again, is like in a privacy world where there's no first party data, nothing is shared. All you have is estimates. I don't know necessarily where Ahrefs gets their data, but again, it's using AI to estimate things. So that's a better bet than, oh, well, here's your first party data and I blew a hole in half of it. So I don't really know what's going on in the other half of it. And I, I think there are other countries that are going to imitate GDPR and imitate their European Union. I don't know if you saw, there was just this massive fine against Facebook from GDPR or, or GDPR violation. They paid, paid hundreds of millions of dollars. I remember when GDPR came out, the European Union was like salivating, like, all right, we made a law which guaranteed all these big tech companies are going to break and we're just going to like fill our budget holes with the law that we made. And you can have other countries look at this and say, okay, cool. Uh, this is like a great way to make tech companies pay you taxes they weren't already paying. So we'll pass a law that they're guaranteed going to break. So I'm sure like massive companies around massive countries around the world that, you know, could do this, like good luck, Brazil, Japan, go for it. China, I'm, I'm sure you're going to have a good time with this one. So Russia, if you want to fill your budget holes, like again, tech companies have moved out of Russia and maybe they're not subject to the same things. They could just say, great, you passed a law, but your users can't Google anymore. But Google and Facebook and Apple, they will have to comply with a lot of countries and they will pay their fines or you know, depending on the country, maybe it won't be a fine. It'll just be a bribe to the right people. It's it's, it's interesting because I don't, I personally don't think GDPR helped that much. I think Europe in general is more data sensitive than in the US. Everybody here is like, oh, just take my data. I want to be, I want to be star. I want to be known to everyone, right? But in Europe, it's a little, because of the history, it's, it's a little bit of a different sensitivity to that. But I'm not sure if GDPR was really such a big help. It definitely made things harder. That's for sure. And more annoying, you know, brought more annoying pop-ups to websites, but I'm still not exactly sure about the value of GDPR and how you would even quantify that. So I have very mixed thoughts. But, you know, I, one thing that I found interesting, and you mentioned Ahrefs. So Ahrefs is known for not tracking anything in, in their marketing efforts, right? So the marketing team doesn't track, I don't think they track visitors or, or, or returns from ad spend and those kind of things. It's, it's a much more kind of gut-driven and, and logical approach to marketing. And I think this whole push of privacy and worse attribution 
will force a lot more marketers to operate on gut feeling, on experience, and on, on really robust logic and principles rather than data. I don't know if that's better or worse. I'm kind of I'm kind of torn between both of these, but I think more companies will operate like Ahrefs where they say, look, all the data is somewhat flawed or attackable. None of it is robust. So we're just going to develop principles and, and other ways to drive marketing and decide how we spend our money than being purely data-driven. Totally. And I remember like, ah, this is, must have been like 2012 or something when this cookie law came out in Europe that you had to like tell people that they were being tracked. And there was all this pushback. We're saying, well, if you throw up these cookie banners, no one's going to go to the internet anymore and they're going to hate it. No one's going to click it. We're not going to track any data. No one wants cookies. And now you, every website you go to, you have to click this thing over and over. And especially like if they're bad at their job and like tracking cookies, so they don't cookie you that you've already accepted their cookies. So like every time you visit the website, you got to accept the cookies again. We still use the internet. It's all fine. So yeah, I think it's just signaling data privacy signaling. Oh, we care about your privacy. So we've passed a law, but I don't know that it necessarily changes anything. Certainly, I don't think the NSA and the CIA and MI5 and like all these, they don't care about this data. If they want to track you, they track you. So it's there. We're not any more secure. We're not getting any worse experiences. It's the marketers that are screwed because we have less data. <laughs> any final thoughts on that? <laughs> No, I think uh, I'm kind of in the same camp. The only thing I could see turn this around is AI, maybe new ways of tracking users through AI. Apple and Alphabet are working on a cookie future uh, with cohort tracking and behavioral tracking. So let's see what that looks like. But it's, it's, it's way too early to make any presumptions or, or forecasts. We're going to have to see what the early attempts look like. But maybe we talk about this at some conferences this year. Eli, have you planned to attend to any conferences or do you have any any favorites that you keep an eye on? So I, I don't think I'm going to any conferences this year. That's what I've learned from COVID, which is conferences are fun. I loved going. I made all my greatest industry friends at conferences, but it's hard to justify going from a business standpoint when I'm to take time off, I take family time off. And I don't think the conferences are as good as they used to be because there's so much learning happening in other places. I personally hate virtual conferences. I've like put time aside and prepared, prepared presentations for a virtual conference. And then I've had nobody show up and nobody reach out. Like that's, that took time. They didn't get paid for it. And there's no value for me at all. So if I know of any conferences, if there are any conferences that want to invite us to come speak, I'm all for it. I don't have any conferences I'm really planning on going to now. My, my past favorite conferences is like PubCon. I went for, I think, 10 years. I loved it. Made so many great friends there. It's the best conference ever. But I think PubCon has gone through iterations and COVID was you know, very painful. And then Content Marketing World in, in Cleveland. Again, an awesome conference, spoke there three times, made great friends, really met a lot of people. But I think they've also gone through this pivot of, well, how do we get people to come in person when we haven't been doing that for a couple of years? And they've been just fine. What are your favorite conferences and what are your thoughts for the year ahead? Yeah, there are a couple. Uh, I've become a bit more selective over time with conferences. So some that I've spoken at that I really love, of course, SEO Oktoberfest is now called the G50 of SEO, incredible network, uh, incredible stuff you learn there. It's an invite only conference, but I think you can apply, but it's, you know, it's, it's very kind of gated. There's only 50 people come every year and it's, it's my favorite experiences. SMX Munich is another really good one. I think most SMX conferences are, are pretty good. I've been, I've, I've spoken at personally at the SMX Munich, found a really high level of quality there of uh, presentations. And then another one that I want to mention is online marketing rock stars in Hamburg. What a conference. I spoke there 
this year, uh, well, 2022, not this year anymore, uh, last year, in May, 70,000 people or over 70,000 people, it's, it's, it's more like an exposition, had uh, absolute top liners, some really, really good content, met some amazing people there. And it was a, it was, it was, it was a crazy spectacle. So if you're into online marketing and, and marketing in general, I think this is one you have to have on your radar. All right, I'm going to check that one out. We should go to that one together. We absolutely should. And then in general, yeah, I'm a pro conference, but I agree with you. I think I had very high hopes about online conferences and I generally, I don't dislike them, but I think the format is broken. I think you cannot one-to-one transfer offline conferences to online. I think you need to come up with new formats that are engaging, that, you know, are, are more personalized. Getting to know people still isn't the same thing as in person. It's still it's still a huge gap. So I understand where your, your your hate for online conferences comes from. I think there is an opportunity, but I don't think we can operate with the same formats online as offline. Yeah, and I mean, even as an attendee, like why would you attend an online conference when you could just watch the replay later or go to YouTube and watch the exact same content? I'm still sitting on my computer. I'm still sitting at home. I think that's the biggest problem is, again, if you want to do Q&A, okay, great. You do Q&A, but you do it off conference, off the conference's platform. You go on Twitter, you go on LinkedIn, you email them, same Q&A, you're missing that whole connection. So as an attendee, I haven't found any value from them. Of course, if they have like replays, you just watch the replay later. And then as a speaker, you know, initially there were a lot of people that came to these things. So, you know, hundreds of people showed up, but it, the last ones I've done, five people showing up, but it's something I prepared for not really a ton of value. Yep, yep, I'm all with you. Cool, we, we agree on something, Eli. Uh, I think this is a wrap. Let us know what you think uh, on the LinkedIn post about promotions and raises. And we're also very curious about your big themes for 2023. Let us know what we forgot. Tag us on LinkedIn, reach out, DM us, and let us know what else we should have on our radar for 2023. As always, we'll track our predictions in a spreadsheet that we're gonna share with you. And I say, until the next time, Eli. All right, thanks, Kevin, this is a wrap. And now it's your turn. Head over to contrarianmarketingpodcast.com and subscribe to the free weekly newsletter to get a summary of today's episode, key takeaways, and community content. And while you're there, go to today's episode and leave your opinion in the comments. We'll feature the best thoughts in the newsletter and on the podcast. Also, if you like today's episode, please feel free to leave five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, thanks so much for tuning in and here next week.